Hi, I'm Casey Mraz, and you're listening to the Lawyer Mastermind Podcast, where we help attorneys grow their law firms by interviewing experts who can fast track their success. I'm Casey Moraz from the Lawyer Mastermind Podcast, and today we're joined by an experienced personal injury attorney, Mr. Stuart J. Gus, who's grown his personal injury law firm from just himself to over 120 employees uh, and seven offices across several states for growing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Stuart. Absolutely, my pleasure. And I'm not sure how I mistakenly got invited to the Mastermind Podcast because I wouldn't call myself a mastermind at anything, but I do appreciate the, uh, the, the opportunity to share what wisdom I can. <laughs> well, that's funny. Well, you know, your experience definitely shows that you uh, have uh, succeeded, it seems like, across a number of years here. So tell us your story. Where did you start and how did you get to where you are? Yeah, no problem. And, and um, as I've mentioned before, I'm a bit of a talker, so I'll try and keep it fairly succinct. But um, yeah, I, I attended uh, undergrad at the University of Texas and um, spent some time after I graduated at the Red and Combs uh, MBA program. Um, realized, this was back in the 80s, realized that I didn't want to wear uh, my hair short. Uh, so I didn't know if business was the right career. And I looked into law, seemed like a good fit. Ended up going to uh, U of H Law, graduated at a time in Houston when the economy was a little bit rough. Uh, managed to pick up a job. Basically, my first job out of law school, I was an appellate lawyer. Um, so I started my career basically fixing other lawyers' missteps, which uh, at the time, I was too young and too hungry and, and too in, in student debt to know any better. But it was actually a great way to start my career. Ended up doing a little bit of, uh, I'd, I'd clerked for a really great uh, personal injury lawyer, uh, Kenny Cole. He's moved to uh, Tennessee now. Um, so as the PI cases came in, I built up my docket. In 1999, I uh, started off on my own. Just me uh, in a 12 by 12 rented office, made the coffee in the morning, sent all my own faxes. I hope your listenership knows what a fax is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And then at the end of the day, you know, did everything all day long. And at the end of the day, uh, cleaned the coffee pot and went home. Wow. Okay. Well, that's awesome. And, you know, you started off by yourself. And I think a lot of people are intimidated, whether they're working at a firm right now and they have that dream of starting their own firm. You know, that transition, one of the things that I hear most common is how am I going to have that security or that money? How did you finance the growth of your firm? Did you just, you know, start off from day one? Um, did you take a loan? What happened? So I can say this safely because my wife and I are so much in love after 20 something years, there's no chance of a divorce. So I will say this right here, right now, in case you're listening, Kelly, I owe it to her. She, uh, she had a great career. Um, she was a nurse anesthetist, had a steady job and a steady paycheck. So um, it was honestly a little bit easier for me um, because as, as you solos know, some months, uh, you know, you eat the fat of the calf mm -hmm. and some months you're eating the shoe leather at the bottom of your worn out shoes. 
So um, I did have my wife's uh, career as sort of a backup to help smooth out um, the income curve. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't, it really doesn't matter. If you can cut your budget down low enough and um, you know, manage your, your, yourself to, to keep those expenses as low as possible, anyone can open up as a solo. You're not gonna have an oak paneled office you're not gonna have a million dollar uh, you know, appearance. You're not gonna have uh, a bunch of staff people running around, but I think you can open up a solo practice on any budget, particularly today, thanks to the internet and technology that's available. No, that's a good point. The internet and just obviously with everything that's going on in the world right now, the ability to yep. work from home in a lot of cases has changed things. Um, now, as far as if you were to give advice to somebody that's starting their firm now, I think a lot of business owners can can relate to thinking of the cash flow side of things. And, you know, sometimes that's going to be good. Sometimes that's going to be bad. What would you tell people to save? Um, like if if they're starting a new firm, like what percentage or? Yeah, so so I'll tell you, and, and this is honestly, um, you know, this is honestly probably the hardest thing that takes the most um, perseverance and dedication. But what I realized early on, um, you know, I've always had a small stock portfolio and I still do. It's not particularly huge, um, but I have invested. My parents taught me well ever since I was young. Um, but I realized from an early age that I had faith in myself and I realized uh, I had faith in my business. And I, I just turned to my own law firm as the biggest investment that I could make. So from the day I started turning a profit at the law firm, I would make sure that essentially I would take 90 cents out of every dollar of profit and figure out a way to reinvest it back into the firm. Um, and I've done that, you know, month after month, year after year for 20 years. And that's really, so, so the wonderful thing that I like to explain to people is I've grown a fairly um, successful, fairly large practice. Um, the real beautiful thing about it is that although I love bankers and I have nothing against them, I haven't borrowed a single penny to build what I have and I don't owe anyone a dime. Wow, that's incredible. And I, I feel like not only is that rare, I mean, that discipline that you have is just amazing because I, that's the biggest problem that I hear uh, from other attorneys, it's, you know, cash flow, or they can't manage that money, or they have money in the bank, and then they spend that on all these upgrades or things they think they need. It's kind of like taking that profit first mentality to an extreme is what you're doing. And I love that. Yeah, yeah. so I think so I think the trick there is to make sure. Um, uh, and, and, and I'm not, you know, I was as guilty of this as anyone. Every lawyer, you've spent so much time and effort, you put your heart and your soul into going to law school and passing the bar, there is something about having the trappings of a lawyer, that Beamer, that Mercedes, like I said, that, you know, that beautiful mahogany desk. Um, but I think that if you really want to invest yourself, invest in yourself in the long term, you have to let go of those trappings for a while. Um, I drove a beat up Nissan Sentra for the first four or five years of my career, as much as I wanted a Benz. Um, I, again, it was just a question of prioritizing investment into my business and into the future. Awesome. I got a Mercedes. I did get a Mercedes finally. <laughs> okay. It just, took, it just took a while. That's awesome. I mean, I really like that, that prioritization um, though. I mean, 
that's that's really great advice, I think, for anybody starting off, especially if they can't wrap their mind around the money side of things. So, um, so obviously, when you're starting up and you're you're building a business, there's a lot of different struggles that you have. What would you say is your biggest struggle? Yeah, well, so that's actually um, as as a lawyer, but particularly as the owner of a law firm, and 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 I do categorize those 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 two classifications differently. Um, my biggest professional struggle, and I mean this, I mean, I look back on when I was going toe to toe every morning in the courtroom, lawyering, deposing, trial work, all that stuff. I thought that that was really hard and really challenging. But in hindsight, as the owner of a business, that was easy compared to the challenge of managing people. <laughs> And, and I will tell you um, without exaggeration that if you really want to succeed in your law practice and, and you want to build it, whether you want to build it to, to 100 plus people like I've done over a couple of decades, or if you just want to have five or 10 people, maybe a branch office in another city, um, you have to be able to manage people. You have to be able to spot talent um, best advice I ever got, uh, hire slow, fire quick. Mm -hmm. You need to make sure that your people are motivated, that they work for you, not just for the paycheck, but because they believe in your, in your, in your vision, in what you're trying to do and trying to work with all sorts of different personalities that have a different approach to the same job set. There, there's no bigger challenge as a business owner, in my experience, than learning how to be a really good motivator, leader, and manager of people. Wow. Yeah, no, that's also great advice. Because in, in my own experience, I found that managing people is the hardest part of any business. And I also Absolutely. like that advice, you know, hire slow and fire quick. Because, you know, a lot of times, if you don't address those problems, what happens? And you've probably seen that more than, uh, than definitely more than me. And I'm sure that... <laughs> You've seen how it can bring down an organization as well. Yeah, and I would, and I actually would, you know, when it comes to the, 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 the personnel struggles, if you don't mind expanding on that a little bit, because I, I you know, I, I think your, your viewership, your audience, um, you know, are probably all growth minded. So, Absolutely. yeah, so there's going to be a question of adding staff and, and staffing up. The two other pieces of advice that I'd like to give for whatever it's worth um, are you need to make sure that um, you hire ahead of your need curve. And we were talking before about cash flow issues. Um, believe me, when you're, when you're starting up on that cash flow curve and you're still struggling to make ends meet, it is the hardest thing in the world. My philosophy early in my business was, I'm not gonna hire my next employee until I'm absolutely at the breaking point. Mm -hmm and things are, and the wheels are coming off the bus, and then I'll invest. Um, I have learned the hard way that you actually need to project your needs into the future. And if you see a steady increase in your docket, which I hope all of you do, um, I highly recommend you hire in advance of your needs. And there's nothing harder, I understand, than, than meeting payroll when you're only at 90 or 93% staff utilization. But it is the only way to avoid, uh, if you do it the way I used to do it, 
you are always going to run around in crisis mode. Mm-hmm. The only way to maintain stability, control, and not have everyone running around with their hair on fire, um, hire ahead of the curve. That's my first piece of advice. Second piece of advice, learn how to delegate and do it responsibly. Delegating is not telling someone, hey, attorney John, you know, you're, you, I need you to do this. Or hey, paralegal Steve, I need you to take care of this. Delegating is setting aside the time to sit down, really go through what your expectations are, what the execution is on the task, what the purpose is of their doing, take the time to, to, to train, let them run around for a while, do it, come back and take the time to check and make sure it's being executed the way it needs to be. Again, as, as a, a lawyer growing to practice, it's always hard to find time, but you have to make time to make sure that you train and delegate responsibly. Absolutely. Yeah, and delegation there, I wanna to touch on that just a little bit more as well. So it sounds like that you're very clear on what that outcome is for the people that you're delegating that work to. How has that kind of freed up your time to focus on the more important things? Well, so, so the way it used to work was when I was growing my business, essentially, I never, you know, these are all lessons that I learned the hard way. I wouldn't take the time to delegate responsibly and appropriately in the way that I discussed. So um, what I ended up doing was sort of, you know, um, I'll keep it clean, half, I sort of did a half tohus job of, of delegating and training. And if you don't know what tochus means, ask one of your Jewish friends. Um, so what I ended up doing was I'd have a bunch of well-meaning, dedicated staff members that were really trying hard to do what needed to get done for the organization. And they were doing it about 83% correctly. Well, then I would come back a month or three months later, and I would have to spend all of my time fixing that 17%. Because if you don't go back and check that things are being executed the way they need to be, you know, you train someone to do something, they develop habits. They do it once, twice, 50 times, 100 times. Their heart's in the right place. But if it's not being done the way you need it to be done, you're going to end up with a lot more time spent on cleanup than you ever would have spent on appropriate training and delegation in the first place. Does that make sense? I don't know if I even answered the question that you asked. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. I mean, because you kind of got me in a different direction now. And that's if you have tips to make sure um, that people are following up on this and it's being done the right way, as opposed to just letting it kind of fail into that 17%. Yeah, and really what it boils down to is this, you know, again, I mentioned uh, earlier, um, you know, I was very thankful to have a bunch of great lawyer and business mentors as I started my practice. And um, one of them uh, gave me the best piece of advice. So what I'm, what I'm, you know, suggesting people do, no matter how busy you are, always spend the time up front to make sure that you're heading in the right direction. And nothing is harder when you've got, you know, a response for a motion uh, for summary judgment due and you've got a trial next week and all this other stuff. But you've got to take the time to get everything going in the right direction. The best one of the best pieces of advice I ever got. Ready for this? If you don't take the time to drain the swamp, you will spend your entire life fighting alligators. Interesting. Okay, I like that. 
It's a good analogy. Yeah, and that stuck with me. That's awesome. So, you know, it sounds like that you've had good experience with when you're having the cash coming in and that you're managing people and using other people's talents to, you know, help grow your firm. What would you say to law firms that don't have that business coming in? What areas should they focus on to get new cases? Yeah, so, so, so I'll explain a little bit about, you know, my marketing. And, and just so you know, my background, um, I, I was sort of a computer geek when I was a kid back in the 80s. <laughs> okay. So uh, my dad worked for IBM and, and I built my first IBM XT out of spare parts. Uh, nice. okay. 85, 86. So I've sort of been on the bleeding edge of computers and technology for a long time, which means that I don't know when I registered my, my domain name, but I mean, it was probably at least 18 or 20 years ago. And I, and I decided early on to go with a digital model for advertising. Um, I, I have a lot of friends that do more traditional advertising. So when I was coming out of the box, obviously the yellow pages and again mm -hmm. for those of your audience members who don't know what a fax machine is they're not going to know what the yellow pages are either uh look it up on the internet it's a wonderful thing um so yellow pages billboards and obviously television advertising um i am friends with a lot of enormously wonderful talented and successful lawyers that have taken those routes and have succeeded I think that a digital marketing model makes a lot more sense in the 21st century because you're able to target your audience where you want them, when you want them, and really when they have a need. Yeah. So all of our marketing is basically designed to be, um, if you don't need a lawyer, you're never going to see me or hear about me. But if you engage in any activity on the internet that indicates a need for a lawyer, we're going to come up as, as, as you know, we should be showing up as an option for you to explore. Mm -hmm. uh, you can think about it like this, billboards, television, uh, old school advertising, the way I always thought about it, you could put 10,000 flyers in a helicopter, little leaflets. You can, my headquarters is in Houston. I could take that helicopter, take it, 10,000 feet over the city of Houston and dump 10,000 leaflets. Yeah. But if I do that, I'm hoping that six or eight or 10 of them will land on the windshields of people who need a lawyer. That's the way I look at television and, and, um, and, and for instance, billboard advertising. And I understand and I respect the nature of branding Mm -hmm. I've just found, you know, I just found that I was able to, to spend my advertising budget much more effectively with a much higher ROI exclusively doing um, digital means of, uh, of advertising. Okay, great. Well, no, that's good. And, you know, like you were saying, people are looking for you at that point. They need your service. And so they do that search and they find you. Um, so you're going to be in front of the right people at the right time. If that's, that's the idea. Problem. That's the idea. Nice. So let's talk about kind of how your firm transitioned and, and has grown over the years. Like how have, what's the best move I guess you've ever made and um, what are some other challenges that you've experienced? Yeah, so, so I'll tell you, it's sort of fun. I've always had sort of a mind for business and an eye for business. Like I said, you know, I started at the um, Red McCone School of Business before I, before I went to law school. And I can remember 
Um, the first time I hired an employee, uh, she was a friend of mine and she had worked with me at a, at a firm that I was employed at previously. She was moving back to Houston, needed a job. Um, I said, here's the deal. I know you, I love your work and I'd love to work with you. I have no idea what you can do for me. I have no idea what I'm doing that I can give up to someone else. So I can only hire you part-time. And even then, you're going to have to help me figure out what your job is because I can't think of anything I do that I'm willing to give up. Um, then I started to uh, staff up a little bit. I figured out the hard way how to delegate, staffed up a little bit. Um, and I remember I had two or three employees and I was sitting in the pool with my dad 15 years ago. Uh, and I said, dad, you know, my dream come true one day, I think I might someday get up to like 10 or 12 employees, but then man, I'm done. That's it. I will never get any bigger <laughs> than that. Um, but then things just keep happening. Things keep rolling. The docket keeps, keeps increasing and you find more and more clients that you can do good work for. You get great outcomes on your cases and it's very motivating. In terms, in terms of actually sort of breaking through some barriers on growth, um, I'm going to give one really important piece of advice to your listeners that maybe um, are in the 5 to 20 employee range. You need to think about opening up a separate intake department. And, and there's a very specific reason that I'm going to tell you this. Um, up until about that point, I did a little later, maybe 20 people, 25. I had my, my attorneys and my case managers and my paralegals doing all of the intake for me. Um, funny thing is, though, um, the same people, those same people who were doing the intakes, um, subconsciously, no, I don't think anyone would ever, you know, deliberately fudge an intake. But in the back of their heads, they're thinking, okay, so I'm going to sign up this case for the firm. And that just means my workload is one case larger. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. And it's human nature. But I'll tell you what I did. Um, several years ago, I opened up a separate intake department. And now I have a whole department. It's supervised by, by attorneys. Um, but uh, their whole job is to field inquiries, talk to new clients, and basically gather information that we can then use for attorney review in terms of directions, sign up, don't sign up. Um, so I've got my intake department totally and completely motivated to and focused on intake and signing up qualified cases. Mm -hmm. Then I've got my in-house production team, you know, the, the, the case signs up and then they are absolutely focused on working those cases through to the maximum result for the clients without having to worry about being interrupted every 15 or 20 minutes to take uh, a potential client call. Oh, wow. Okay. No, that's good advice. Interesting. Did you see a lot of uh, growth specifically attributed to that? Um, no, because, well, not necessarily because what that did was, is it freed up everyone's time and it freed up everyone's focus. So the growth of my docket has actually really correlated very closely to my, to my marketing model. And I mean, that's logical and that makes sense. So it wasn't necessarily saw that it wasn't necessarily that I had an explosion in my docket or a, or, or a, a big chunk increase in my docket. 
what it did was it gave all of my team members the ability to, to really narrowly focus on what their task and their responsibility in the firm was. So it's not when I, when I broke out and, and started my own index department, it's not that that um, you know, caused an increase in my docket, but it did result in a huge increase in productivity. So as my docket naturally grew, as we invested more and more into marketing, we were able to more efficiently and productively manage and work through those cases, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Okay. Well, that's great. And, you know, you got to spend the, your time on the things that are going to have the biggest impact. So um, it sounds like that was a good part of your model, a good change. Yeah, so, so not to go off and, and be all geek-like, I don't know if you've ever read any Kurt Monaghan, but he has a very, he has a great uh, short story. I think it's called Harrison Bergeron. And I won't go into details. It's basically a society where everyone has to be equal. So if you're really intelligent and focused, you have to wear a little hat and an alarm goes off every 60 seconds just to distract you. Well, that's what my paralegals and attorneys were going through uh, in a sense, as they were working on their docket, working on their cases, potential client call, you have to pick in, you, you, you spend 20, 20 minutes, 30 minutes on the phone, you can't even remember where you were, where you, where you stopped to pick up that call. Mm -hmm. No, that's a good point. And, you know, if, if your people are doing that and they're getting distracted all the time, I feel like that would also maybe have a negative impact on customer experience, how, you know, customers are, are experiencing working with your firm. But, you know, is, when you talk about the long-term success, where you've gone from to where you are today, what are some of those strategies that you would put in place or tell other law firm owners? Yeah. So, um, so this is actually, if you really want to succeed um, as a lawyer or like, you know, I like to characterize myself, the, the owner and operator of a law firm, and, and I wear both of those hats. Um, I think there are two core pieces of advice that I would give you. And honestly, this is the same advice I give you, I would give, whether you were that solo working in that 12 by 12 office like I was making your coffee in the morning and cleaning the pot at the end of the day, or if you run a four or 500 person law firm. Number one, always, always, always put the client's needs first. Now that's drilled into us in law school and particularly when we study ethics, um, but where the rubber hits the road, um, you know, there are always temptations to deprioritize something or take a tiny little bit of a shortcut. No one will notice. I think that if you focus every intention that you have and every minute that you put on your files, always remembering to put your clients first before anyone. Now, my staff is a close second in my priority. But if you always put the client's in, uh, needs and interests first, that's my first rule of success. And then very closely tied to that, it's very simple. Every day when you go to work, and, and this is true for lawyers, it's also lawyers, true for your staff, file clerk, paralegal, doesn't matter. Um, you will be faced with a decision that you have to make. When you are faced with a decision that you have to make, it's very simple. Do the right thing. Period. End of story. And you know what the right thing is. Do the right thing. And then, as they say, lather, rinse, repeat. Um, 
the advantage of this is not only will you be setting yourself up for very long-term success, but to be honest with you, when you take those two approaches to the practice of law or running a law firm, the best advantage you have is that when your head hits the pillow at night, there's nothing keeping you up because you know you've done the right thing all day long, just like you did the day before and the day before that. That's awesome. Do you think that your clients notice that and that makes them feel like, you know, working with you is like an exceptional service? It's, it's interesting. Some yes and some no. Um, as, every, as every lawyer knows, and in particular personal injury lawyers, you know, 80% of your clients are pretty easy to work with and, and you know, understand what you're doing and are, are appreciative. And, and, but then you have the 10% of your clients that will bring you champagne and flowers at the end of the case, and they're always so sweet to you. And then you have the 10% of the clients that no matter how hard you work, and even though you ran uphill in the snow, five miles in three degree weather to win their case for them, they're still not happy. So here's the thing. The short answer is sometimes they notice. But here's the key. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether your clients know that you're doing the right thing for them and putting their interests ahead. It's great if you can communicate to that to them, but that's not the point. The point is that you know that you're putting your clients first and putting everything you got into their cases. Um, and, and, you know, that's all you can do. And beyond that, I think sometimes you just have to let the chips fall where they may. Got it. Well, that's really good business advice. And then what would you say as we get to the end here and we're wrapping up, what's your personal, what, sorry, what's your best personal advice that you would give? Yeah. So everybody who knows me, um, and it's funny, new friends that I meet, they hear that I'm a lawyer and, and you know, I'm a litigator and all this. And, and quite frankly, they're expecting, you know, someone meets me, they expect to see, a, 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 you know, an egregious, egotistical, abrasive jerk. Um, and that is 110% opposite of who I am. Uh, my philosophy in life, and I was raised, Stephen and Evelyn, my parents, were just the most generous, loving, and kind people. Uh, and they taught me so well in that regard. My best piece of advice, again, whether you're a lawyer or want to be a lawyer or support staff or you have nothing to do with the law, be nice. Just be nice. It doesn't cost you anything extra. And after 53 years on this planet of doing everything I can to be nice all the time, you, you, whether it's God or whatever or karma, it works out well in the end. It really does. That's awesome. And I, you know, that's sound advice for life really. And, you know, I've seen, I've and worked with attorneys that have thrown chairs at other people, versus, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, this approach. And I definitely, you know, appreciate that and your compassion. And, you know, speaking of that, thank you for joining us today and sharing all of these wonderful tips with you. I know we had talked about, or uh, sharing these tips with our audience. I know we had talked a little bit about um, you being available to potentially answer questions if people may have them. Would you be willing to share your email address? Yeah, absolutely. At the ripe at the ripe old age of fifty three, and having achieved what I've achieved with the help of of those who came before me, now that I've got a little gray in my beard, I am absolutely happy to help those who are up and coming. Feel free to email anytime, Stuart at attorneygus.com. That is S T E W A R T at attorneygus G U S S 
www.ethicsmith.com. I'd be happy to chat or give any advice for whatever it may be worth. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that gen uh, generous offer. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's clear that you've been very successful and I wish you the best moving forward. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity.